Welcome, everybody, to Slip Angle Show. I'm Austin Cabot, and today I am in Redondo Beach, California, with a gentleman that I've wanted to have on the show probably for close to about a year now since I first met him. Uh, we have Mr. Don Gardner from uh, DG Spec. How's it going, Don? It's going good. It's a hot day in Redondo Beach. We're it in the is. 90s here. It is. It's finally, you know, last week it was in the 50s and 60s, and then I went out today, and it's like in the 70s or low 80s even, kind of like breaking a sweat walking over here a little bit. Yeah, well, when I was coming over out of Del Mar, it was 95 degrees at 5 p.m., so oh, we're pretty hot in April here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, I, I talked to uh, my co-host, Adam Jabay, today, and uh, he woke up to two inches of snow in Chicago, so it's nice to be here in SoCal, isn't it? Yep. So, to race all year round. Yeah. So now you, you obviously are the founder and owner of DG Spec, um, which we'll talk about in a little bit. You guys have built some awesome, awesome cars, but a lot of people, you know, might recognize the cars. They don't know that you're behind them necessarily, and you actually have quite a a broad racing background. I know you've done a lot of stuff with World Challenge and other things like that. Um, how did you first get into to racing? I mean. Did you grow up in a family that, you know, was around racing a lot? Was your dad a car guy? Things like that. That's how most people usually get into it. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know how many people are in my situation. I don't like to consider myself just like one of a kind. I mean, if other people want to decide that, that's fine. It's not for me to say. But um, I didn't have a dad that was into cars. I didn't have a family member or anybody in the car business, let alone the racing world. Um, for me, it was just one of those things. It's one of the mysteries of life at three years old. I wanted to snap together little snap models. My mom wouldn't let me use glue at that time, right? And then when you graduate and you're in the testers models and painting and gluing stuff together and there's a million pieces. And so for me at that time, it was like I was making 930 slant nose turbos and um, Ferrari GTOs and uh, 959s. And, and, you know, that was sort of, that was my thing. I was into it and then eventually got into uh, RC racing so I was building like turbo optimas and I had a nitromethane uh, eighth scale vanning. And so I learned a lot about cars through that. But to answer your question, I mean, it, it's it's a mystery. It was I was a little kid that, you know, starting at seven or eight would come home from school, get on my BMX bike. And I grew up in Chicago. So when the weather permitted, I would like ride my bike down first. I go to the candy store and you get like whatever Sour Patch Kids and a bunch of other crap. And then I would go to the Walgreens, and I would read all the car magazines cover to cover. Yep. And once in a while, if I felt like I didn't want to spend all my money on my candy, like I saw a magazine with the cover of, like, 928 S4 or something like that, I would buy it. So, I mean, that's sort of where the interest began. I can't tell you what it is. I can tell you what it is now. As an adult, I can describe what I love about the cars and what I love about the industry, you know, that I work in. But in terms of the origination or where it came from, what the influence was, it just kind of happened. It's just it's one of those things that I gravitated toward. Yeah. And and at some point in my life, it was very clear that I was going to do something with cars, and that I was meant to do something with cars, and that I decided that that's what I was going to do. But not before a couple zigzags along the way. Yeah. You know, I can I can really relate. I used to ride my BMX bike to the local Books a Million, and I knew exactly what day the magazines that I liked would come out on the rack. You know, when they pull the old ones down and put the new ones up, I had to be one of the first people there to see it. And that was that was a big a big part of my youth, and something that I, I really really enjoyed and, and look back on. So you know, I, it sounds like you were kind of much much the same way. I mean, I'll tell you, one of the things that's not lost on me right now is. There came a point in time where a stock 959, as crazy as it sounds or whatever, wasn't enough. Right. And I would later come to find out that there were companies called like Strosec and Rinspeed and Peter Farrell Supercars and Hennessy and HKS and, and the big ones that people know, like, like Saline and that kind of stuff. But Callaway is another good example. But I, I then my interest got peaked again because... I mean, there were these awesome cars that then people were making faster or making even better. Sometimes, a lot of the times, they would gain one thing but lose another thing. And it right. always told the story. It's like, if you don't have all the research and development or the brains or the money or the time of the factory, like, you can make a car go backwards really, really fast, right? <laughs> Sometimes the factory just does it better. But, you know, to be honest with you, at that particular point in time, it never occurred to me in my wildest dreams that that would be me. I mean, maybe there were things like I thought I thought of myself like I could be a journalist, and I was. I started my career as a journalist. We can oh, talk right. about I didn't that. Know that. Yeah. Okay. But um, of all the things that I've gotten to do that I do now, 
to think about the fact that you mentioned like there's a lot of media that cover a lot of the cars that I built. Maybe people know I'm behind it. Maybe they don't. But um, that's the one I think that's the coolest because when I was a kid reading about these guys and like just salivating over like there were guys making these fast cars even faster. Now I'm a person that's making cars go even faster and a whole new generation of kids and adults are reading about it and getting excited and are they're emailing me or calling me up and saying their 12 year olds read this on CNET or, you know, I mean, it's just amazing to me that that's sort of a part of where we're at right now and where I'm at. I never, ever thought like that was never like a mission. It's not something I intended, but I just got deeper and deeper and deeper into cars. And I guess at some point, you know, you put your stamp on cars the most by, by building a car. Right. So um, it's not the only thing we do, but uh, it's it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for for me, some of the cars that you guys have built, too. You know, I think I told you this at SEMA. My favorite car at SEMA was the CHR that you guys brought R2. or built and brought this year. Yep. The that R2. thing. Yeah. That thing was absolutely awesome. Um, but when you got up real close and looked at it, the fit and finish on it, I think, is what impressed me the most. Yeah. I mean, you and your team did an absolutely amazing job with that. And I think that kind of just goes to show the approach that you guys have. It's not, it's not enough to have a car that looks cool for media events and things like that. You know, you guys really do take a lot of pride in, in how you build everything. And I think that goes back to, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe the models that you were building <laughs> when you were growing up were, you know, had that sort of attention to detail too, but it, it really goes to show what you and your team and your business is, is kind of all about. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm glad that people notice. Uh, you know, the group vice president of all of product planning for all of Toyota and all of Lexus division in the United States also said something similar to me and others have too, which is an awesome compliment for me. Um, I see one of our sort of, brand promises as um, like race philosophy with OE quality. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do both, you know, at the same time. And when we took on the project of the CHRR tune and we set our, our sights at like, how can a front wheel drive four cylinder SUV go faster than a supercar? Right. And GTR was in there and we were talking about 911 and some of those cars. Didn't know how long it was going to take to make it as the fast, you know, as fast as we needed to make it. But what ended up happening is we got it so fast at one point in last August. Um, and we had about, I think it was like 45 days left before SEMA. And so a couple of my guys said, like, I think we should do this and I think we should do that. And um, we've got some other cosmetic things we can do. And, you know, it's SEMA. And so. I wasn't really sure about it because like kind of the race and the performance guys. But once I thought about it, what really appealed to me, what was starting to form up was what if we could basically we're obviously any of the people that just like are all show and no go. We're going to kill no matter what. because it's what we do. <coughs> but I wanted to beat them at their own game. So I said, I take the last 45s. And we're going to beat the show guys at the show quality and it's going to do this. So it's like it was getting to the point where it was coming together and it was looking really glossy and good. And I'm like, nobody's going to believe this car has been on the track 10 times and on the dyno 16. (laughs) But like it has. And um, it was really motivated by trying to beat them at their own game, you know. So to me, it's just everything's just kind of another championship to win. And so, you know. There's some amazing craftsmanship and like concepting that gets done for like these hot rods and things at SEMA. I mean, there's a place for those kinds of show cars. It's just not what we do. And so to me, in order for something to wear the DG spec propeller or the DG spec brand, it's got to actually perform in some way, shape or form that can be measured and can be proven and is really authentic. Like, I'm not interested in taking on projects that's like, we're going to build this cool SEMA concept show car, the paint's going to be drying or the fenders rub or like (laughs) all this stuff. And I also want to use as much of the OE stuff as possible and do the OE quality, like whether it's the looming or the paint processes or, you know, I mean, I think that the car is very extreme from the standpoint of like its performance and how many things were changed. But when you open up the doors and you look at it and when you close the doors, like everything's very real, like it's extreme, but it's like extreme OE performance. Right. And there came a point in time where 
sort of a crossover point. And I told the guys, I'm like, if it has a Toyota Sombrero on it, that's the Toyota, you know, logo, the two kind of halos, said, we need to maintain Toyota quality. I don't care if it is 600 horsepower. I know it's hard to do, but we have to set our bar to do right by, you know, Mr. Toyota and, and those that came before him, uh, as well as everybody that is a part of this great Toyota brand to not diminish that. And those are things that racers do not think about. It's important to me, and I think it's important for us to represent a company like Toyota that way. Right. You know, and that, that car, too, I know you said, you know, even before SEMA, you guys had it on the dyno 16 times, and it was at the track for 10 days. Uh, you know, that just goes to show that, you know, it wasn't just about building a quality car for SEMA. It was about building a quality car that actually worked. And I think you guys got down to what, like a 125 or so at Big Willow? They ran a 125 in the summer. Now they're on another tire. It's about a 123. It's really, really? fast. Yeah. 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 I mean, and for those of you that don't know, the, the Toyota CHR, that's pretty much their new smaller crossover SUV. You know, it's not anything that you would expect to, you know, to be putting down those sort of lap times. Obviously, you know, it took your team a decent amount of work to get it there, but... You know, it's yeah. really cool. It's one of those cars that you go, wait, that ran what? You know, so it's, I've always liked cars that are a little bit goofier and a little bit out of the norm that just work really well. And I think that's the reason that why that car, to me, is one of my, it's pretty much my favorite car at SEMA this year. Well, so Toyota has a company um, that they use, and other, other manufacturers have this same company or other companies that measure, like, um, they do media monitoring, and mm -hmm. they look at, like, okay, they take a show or they take an engagement or something, and they look at, like, well, who owns what share of the voice so of what the media are out there talking about? And I think one of the things that we're the most proud of, not just in reactions, but when you look at the analytics and the metrics and you look at that measurement, the CHR R-Tune was the number three most covered car of the 2017 SEMA show and the number one most positively reviewed car in the media of the 2017 show. Right. That's every car wow. at the show. Wow. So... Regardless of what the people at Battle of the Builders were or weren't thinking, why that car didn't even get a look, they didn't even come look at it for even a, even a first cut, you know, I, I, I can't speak to what's in their head, but there's a lot of other people that have, you know, recognized the vehicle throughout, you know, a, a whole uh, array of media, whether it's enthusiast media or mainstream media like CNET and Truth About Cars and um, Maxim, I mean, some of the others. So that's... You know, really exciting for me and the guys. I mean, the car, we estimate that the car, between us and all of our partners and the way a whole car comes together, had a, had a and, you know, it's still, a, every, everything's always a work in progress, and you're still developing and developing, but, you know, over the course of a, over a little over a year, we've got, like, 10,000 hours in this thing, so... You know, it's a lot of work. You're testing six turbo setups, and you're hot swapping them on the dyno, one after the other after the other. And you've got a guy that sees 1,500 cars a year in Sean Church at Church Automotive Testing saying, no one's ever done that before. And so, you know, it's the same thing that motivated us before the 25-hour to basically go to Willow Springs. And Willow Springs has now been around for 65 years. We're the only team that has ever run a 12-hour continuous test. Really? 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. So... You know, those are the kinds of things. They don't just teach you about what happens with your cars. It also teaches you about your limitations and your sort of logistical issues with your people, whether it's uh, fatigue or whether it's the way they're working together or we didn't have a good enough plan or whatever. So, I mean, I'm a real big believer in you got to run it before you actually run it. So, you know, uh, no one's done it since. No one's no one did it before us. And I don't know, maybe somebody will do it. But then we tore the whole part, car apart and rebuilt it again. So, yeah, I mean, it just shows the, the dedication that you guys have to, uh, you know, to what you're building. I mean, you have a certain certain level of pride in it, you know, both from, you know, an aesthetic standpoint, but also from a performance standpoint. And you want to make sure that, you know, you're delivering you're delivering a product that is going to, you know, pretty much stay true to your word. It's going to be able to last that whole 25-hour race. So that's really, really cool to hear. I, I didn't even think that, you know, that you guys would do something like that, like a full 12-hour It's crazy. Test. Nobody did it. Yeah. There were 92 teams. I mean, yeah. nobody did it. We were the only ones that did it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't do it because we were the only ones that did it. I did it because it was the single best way I could think of, regardless of the cost and the time, to, to learn. And I didn't want to get, I mean... You know, people build all sorts of cool cars, and 
everyone is like right now going to talk to you. Are you still good there? Yeah. Yeah. Talk, sorry, I was just adjusting my headphone level. Everyone's going to talk about Supra. Everybody's going to want to build a Supra. Everybody wanted to do something with the 86. Everybody wants to do something with an RCF. Everybody wants to do something with an ISF. Everybody wants to do something with an LFA. These are all like really cool sports cars or sports sedans or sports coupes. But I do think for whatever reason, and, and there is a reason, but we're the guys that take on the projects that no one else wants to do. While everyone is pursuing like a thousand proposals to go do, you know, Supra, I'd love to do Supra. But at the end of the day, I love even more doing the thing that's not supposed to do something and making it do something. Whether it's a grocery getter Scion TC or a Sienna minivan or a RAV4 or a Land Cruiser. <laughs> Land Cruiser, yeah. Motorsports Technical Center and Chuck Wade and, and Marty Schroeder built that. We helped with the testing and Craig Stanton drove it before Carl Edwards got in the seat. And that thing, you know, to Marty and Chuck's credit, did 230 mi- over 230 miles an hour at the Mojave yeah. Air and Spaceport. But yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of become a part of our brand. And, you know, I, I, we've set up all sorts of cars. And I have a Lotus that I use for tr- track days, you know, mm-hmm. and we instruct and do that kind of stuff. But I love driving the car. It's awesome. But everyone expects that car to go fast. Right. No one expects, you know, a minivan to, to go very fast. <laughs> yeah. So I'm always more motivated by that. And we definitely take on the projects that are the hard road, you yeah. know, so. Yeah, you know, going back to the SEMA engagement, you know, as far as uh, media engagement and stuff like that goes, imagine if you would have done the same thing you did at that CHR, but to an 86, you know, I think it still would have been well received, but it just would have been, would have been another 86 <laughs> that somebody had built and, you know, taken a high level of attention to versus right. the CHR, you know, it's just like you were saying, so far out there and works so well that I don't know I think that's why everybody reacted to it the way that they did yeah well I I think people have also told us that they like how it looks yeah and you know you go through like when you're dealing with a big company like Toyota you go through you know 50 iterations of what that thing's going to look like a lot of times it's the first one you show them that they end up you know weaving their way back to but I think the car looks great. I think people don't think it looks like a CUV anymore. I mean, it still is. Like, you see these big step-offs on the subframe. And the car, CHR, stands for Coupe High Rider, and there is still some of that element that we were fighting. I mean, there's still more in the car. There's still more we can do. Of course, everything comes down to a business case and funding. But, you know, to be honest, that program comes together with two dozen of our of our partners, whether it's Garrett or Desaad or motion control suspension or Vogland, AEM. I mean, there's so many. Toyo mm-hmm. tires, God. And I love being able to deliver stuff that really helps move their brand and maybe even move direct product. I actually heard last week for the first time uh, a lady over at Vogland, her name is, is, is Layla, and she, she runs things over here in, in North America. She told me that after they posted a gallery of our car and some of the articles, they got so many inquiries for suspension that they have just released a coilover kit. Really? And I, I mean, for me, I don't ever expect that, like, with our weird cars, there's going to be a big market. I just know that if people see those manufacturers' products, that they'll buy it for their, you know, Super or BMW or RX-7 or MX-5 or you know, any number of cars. And so that's sort of the tool that we give. It's the marketing megaphone. But when people tell me that literally they got so much interest that they made these parts for this car yeah. because of us, I'm like, you know, that's really cool. That's the thing. You have people out there, you know, enthusiasts that may not have even considered something like the CHR as a daily driver or something like that. And then they saw your car that you guys built for SEMA and they go, you know what? That actually looks kind of good lowered and with some wheels on it. Like, I could drive one of those every day. And so I think that's exactly, you know, probably what happened. You know, CHR isn't like the first car you think of when you're like, oh, I'm going to do suspension and lower it. But when you see what it actually looks like when someone's done it, you know, it's actually a a perfect little daily driver that you can drive around town and and have looking pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, the chassis on that car is built off of the um, Toyota new global architecture. Okay. And um, it started with the Prius and then went into the CHR, went to the Camry. It's... You know, radically reduced uh, center of gravity, um, much increased stiffness in terms of the Hertz rating of the whole unibody, um, and they're 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 
applying it modularly with different track widths and wheelbases to more and more cars as it comes on board. And really that was a leap forward for Toyota to allow their cars, suspensions and their tires and everything else to work. And so what the car really had going for it was was this great underpinning. Um, I don't ever really like to say that we just take a car and tear it apart and turn it into something else. What I really like to say is that we take an amazing creation that, you know, the chief engineer and his team had worked so diligently and so hard to do, and then we amplify it, and, you know, a spinal tap would say we turn it up to 11. So, <laughs> I mean, that's more what we do, and I think that's more important. And, again, that's different than just your basic tuner mentality is because it's got to have a connection with, you know, the raison d'etre or the purpose for the car initially and why the chief engineer and his team built these characteristics in. I didn't want to just throw everything away and then start from scratch. That didn't make sense. It doesn't connect to our, you know, OE partner. And at the end of the day, it doesn't leverage the great things that are already there. A lot of people, their egos get in the way of everything as it relates to cars and racing. I mean, there are more big egos surrounding anything that has to do with the racetrack than probably anywhere else you could go. And all they do is get in the way. I mean, you got to leave your ego at the door. And if you really want to grow, you have to be honest with yourself about what am I really good at? What am I not so good at? And if I really want to win or I want to accomplish anything that people are going to notice, you know, what do I have to sacrifice and what do I have to do? And who's who else's brains can I borrow to make this thing amazing? Because it's not just about any one person. Right. We couldn't do this without my team, without, you know, our OE partner support and two dozen amazing, you know, sponsors. It it doesn't happen. It's it's really a, a massive collaboration. Yeah. One of the things I love the most about racing is it taps so many different parts of your brain. Like, yes, there's the driving part. And then there's the testing part. And then there's the building part. And then there's, like, the race strategy part, especially in endurance racing. And so to have to do all that. And then you rely on the team in endurance racing for the pit stops. And so um, it's just like the ultimate team sport. And if you can exercise all those parts of your brain that you need to do a really great job and you do all of them really well, most people are going to be so far behind you, it's not even going to be funny. And, you know, I, I talk to the guys about a lot of different things. Some of the things we talk about is if you're willing to sacrifice almost everything, anything is possible. Most people don't know what sacrifice almost everything means. I mean, we're just looking out there, you know, not too far from the water here, but how many of your weekends at the beach, you know, uh, hanging out with your buddies and stuff, do you want to sacrifice being in a dark garage? Right. How badly do you want it? And also, again, how much of your ego can you take can you take off the table and like leave at the door somewhere and let this thing really become something amazing? So, you know, for me, I didn't really truly grasp the opportunity that I had to succeed in this until I went to my competition licensing school. It was at Button Willow. Okay. And they were not just going over like you know, what do the flags mean? What does leaving proper racing room mean? Like, what are the rules? How does it all work? They're also trying to give people an understanding of what is going to be required of you to do this activity. How much money is it going to cost? What are you going to need to organize? How much of your time is it going to take? Like, how does all of this go? And, like, I'm, like, looking around the room and I'm seeing these people and most of them, like, have a blank stare on their face. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. We're already doing that. We're already doing that. So then I started walking around the paddock and um, looking around at people's pits and in the garages. And I'm like, okay, they're not doing that. They're not doing that. And they're not doing that. And what I realized is what I thought, for whatever reason, is that everybody does it the way that we do it. Right. I th that's what I thought. And as I looked around and I saw they don't I realize that like if I do this and this and this and this while they're doing this or not doing that we're gonna kill them yeah and so that was sort of a 
what Aaron on my team would call an inflection point. <laughs> and, you know, sort of those two roads diverged in a, in a woods. And, and, and so I, we took the path that said, I'm willing to bet that if we do all these things that they're not doing, we're going to kill them. Right. And, you know, to one extent or another, we had some success doing that on balance for most of, you know, the racing and the other projects that we do. Yeah. So. You know, we've had uh, Emilio Cervantes from 949 Racing on the show before, and he's talked about being able to walk through the paddock before race weekend and just look at how people had, you know, modified their cars and how much they had left on the table and know that he was going to be able to beat them. Like, he was racing with NASA in, in a PT class at the time that allowed a Lexan windshield. And if you walk by someone's pit and saw that they still had, you know, a, a glass windshield in, chances were that their car wasn't optimized for the class and that he was most likely going to beat them. So, you know, it's kind of, kind of interesting. Yeah, you know, that's, uh, Emilio's perspective is just on the car. I actually think that that's not really all that important. I think what's even more important is the way that you work through the system of the rule book itself and the way that you talk with the organizers and the way that you have to lobby. I mean, it's a full-time job at a pro race just to make sure that you're getting what you need and as they're going through the data and making sure other teams teams aren't aren't cheating so that self-policing becomes really important and the way that the politics i mean we could have a whole three-hour discussion <laughs> yeah. on just the politics of racing and how you can be successful at making the system work for you better than it's working for other people but that begins before you even put one part on the car so what emilio is describing is much later down the line right i mean a car in a package that has to get homologated for pro racing going to have a chance or not before you even turn a wrench and before the season even starts if you don't get that thing homologated correctly and you don't deftly and cleverly and accurately get that vts sheet or that homologation that you really need you're going to be a back marker you're going to be in the middle i mean and, and a lot of times a race program is doomed to fail or set up for success from some of the very first decisions that are made. Homologation is one part, but also people get in their heads, I want to race in this class, I want to race in this series, and I want to do it with this car, without any real thought about can that car actually win. Right. This is the car that they want to feel. You know, I mean, there is a saying that it's better to um, throttle back an overdog car than try to develop an underdog car for a class higher. So, you know, that plays out all all day long. And the other thing that people forget is, yeah, you're going to be racing in the fastest class because you said this is where you want to be racing, and there's generally more coverage there. Well, there's not more coverage at the back of the pack. There's more coverage in the lower class if you're running at the front. Right. So, you know, those are things that, that people don't don't really realize. I mean, that's as it relates to, like, pro racing, but even from a club standpoint, if you're racing in a lower class but you're doing, you know, really well – you're giving your sponsors and yourself an opportunity to talk about being the champion, right? right? Versus the guy that drives the expensive, you know, GTS car or something like that. You got a Porsche and you're you're running in the middle or the back. Like, who cares? Yeah, that's always I relevant think, to anybody. I think a lot of times there's a lot of people that get caught up in, I guess, in the romance of racing or the romance of racing a certain platform or a certain chassis. Uh, and I think sometimes that does hold them back, you know. A, their skill level might not be to the point where they can actually best utilize that car, but B, you know, they might be so tied to that specific platform for some reason that they're they're almost doomed from the start if they don't have the proper package of driver plus, you know, funding and stuff like that. Although funding isn't everything, um, you know, it, it does help a lot, but those other cars do take a little bit more to campaign. And if you don't have the money to campaign it the way that it needs to be campaigned, you're not going to do very well either. So, yeah, well, I mean, I, you know... I started with NASA like 15 years ago because I was a journalist and um, when I moved over to the PR side and I was mostly behind a desk, like I just wanted to be out there driving again. And so I had a Nissan Sentra SCR as a daily driver. Oh, was that back in the SCR Cup days? 93. Uh, yeah, I didn't run an SCR Cup, but okay. yeah, I was in the SCR Cup. No, I did run an SCR Cup race. Okay. I ran a rookie, I ran a rookie race in SCR Cup. But... Um, at any rate, so there, I wanted an NX2000, and I found one, and, it, you know, I paid $1,700 for this car. It had, like, 240,000 miles on it. It was a 91, and um, 
you know, we prepped it a little bit and we took it out to Button Willow and on the first lap it blew up. So, you know, <laughs> I towed it back and that was sort of like my introduction to like, not to tracks because I had been out at tracks for, you know, I started at Car and Driver Magazine like, it's almost 25 years ago now, but... Um, was that in Michigan originally? I know you said you're from Chicago. Yeah, I moved out here in the late 90s to take the road test editor position for Edmund. So, like, you know, I was track testing 150 cars a year and running, like, a variety of their programs. It's not the same as racing, but, you know, I was out at the track. We were Still, doing a lot of stuff, and it was pretty, cool. It's a pretty fun job. Yeah. Um, but, like, in terms of competition on a track, that was sort of, like, my, my wake-up call. And, like, I mean, uh, we talked about stories or funny stories or crazy stories like i drove this car up you know loaded with stuff like a lot of people do to sonoma and uh everything went fine and i i did well and in time trialing the car and you know nothing broke and everything was good and we're driving back and i'm there with the guy who's helping crew for me and i don't know somewhere around 150 or 200 miles like like the lights started flickering and like <laughs> bad things started happening and we got stuck on the side of the road and uh like you're taking the 101 up no we were on the at that point we were on the five okay and um pat Lindsay, who i sort of came up with a bit and he was in an s4 a uh a b a b5 i think it was okay it's a b5 like late 90s early 2000s yeah that sounds right yeah yeah the turbo 2.7 yeah, 2.7 yeah yeah uh-huh. he stopped his trailer and they pulled their uh their red top out of the car and they they gave it to us and like okay well if your alternator's dead like well this will get you a, a, a ways so we started driving again and we turned off the lights at night and like <laughs> just barely if you see a car we'd like turn them back on so we didn't get crashed into and just trying to save as then, much power yeah, as you yeah, could <laughs> see how far this red top could go and the answer was the red top with no alternate i mean the alternator was done yeah it went from with no alternator went like another 150 miles really which is amazing what i also learned is the voltage which an ecu needs before it is no longer functional the answer is around 11 and a half <laughs> it's still a good amount of voltage you need to run it to run an ecu so um this was in your nx 2000 yeah and i had a guy with me and he at that point he was uh he was freaking out because he was in the military and he needed to get back to like Camp Pendleton or whatever. Yeah. They thought he was going to throw him in the brig. <laughs> yeah. So um, what I did was I called my friend Chris, who had also like crewed for me and was where I started in his garage in Torrance building this NX. And he had an Evo. And so he said, OK, well, it's like mid 90s. I'll drive up and I'll help you. But at first I needed to get somewhere like where there was a motel or a something. So I took a jump box out of the back of the car and we hooked it up and we wedged it under the hood and the hood was like almost all the way up so you couldn't see the jump see. box was just like connected to the batteries the whole yeah, time and, the, and it was propping up the whole hood <laughs> so you couldn't see out of the windshield so what we decided to do was we would go on the shoulder of the road and with this jump box connected i, I hung my head out the window and, uh, Ace Ventura style. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we were, like, trying to avoid, like, all the tractor trailer treads were in there down the shoulder and stuff. And so, I don't know how, but we limped this thing. Like, I would turn on the lights once in a while. Cause, you know, we were trying to save. I didn't know how long that would last. But I got our, I got us to a hotel. Brian got in the car with Chris. I spent a night in a motel. And I got the car flat towed to... Uh, to Bakersfield, we were in Lost Hills, I think, and okay. then so just like just barely north of Buttonwillow. Yeah, and then um, they did have an alternator, and so <laughs> I just did the work in the in the parking lot there after the tow truck dropped it off and said you're on your own from here, and then and I got it back to the South <laughs> Bay. So I mean, it's you kind of reach those points where you're like, okay, well. I guess I'm going to have to tow. I can't drive the car I run on the track that hard. And you learn other things, like not all alternators or axles or other things are created equal. equal. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, not. you want a good Hitachi or you need a rebuild, you buy it from a good brand, not like, you know, a Pep Boys or AutoZone special. So, um, you know, those parts have their place in, in daily driving. But 
you know, when you're spinning a lot of revs all the time, like voltage regulators can die and this rebuilds just don't really work very well. And it, it actually led me, that story led me, I told the story to Optima and they sponsored me because of it. They oh, really? just like threw a whole bunch of red tops <laughs> at us and stuff. Cause I had this real story and then Hitachi gave us all our alternators too. So, um, yeah, I mean, this was so were, were you still stories. writing at that point? Were you still a journalist uh, when that was going on? Like, did you write an article about it? Like, or like a small editorial or anything? No, I think at that point, because the agency Gardner Automotive Communications started in, um, well, like informally in 02 and then formally as a California corporation in 2003. So this June is our 15 year anniversary. And then like the racing of the Nissan days like sort of happens around 05 and then. I won a national championship in 06. Actually, the inaugural NASA national championship, the first ever in one. In Mid-Ohio, right? Yeah, in Mid-Ohio. Yeah. yeah. And what, then, what class were you in at that time? It was F. It was an F car. It was okay. like against uh, like MR2 non-turbos and GTIs and a couple other cars. Yeah. Neons, some other things. And um, so at that point in time, like Nissan is talking. They're, they're getting ready to move to, to Tennessee. Yeah. And they're talking yeah, about the Nashville, new right? Versa. Uh-huh. Altima and Sentra, they want to get us in, the, in one of those cars, and my race car goes to, like, the big dealer in Cool Springs and goes on display, and all that stuff happens, and then, um, you know, I, I was back in California, and while the Nissan stuff was sort of stalled out, they were, they were trying to get things reorganized as they were going through their move, and you know, I was with a, a customer on sort of the marketing side from Toyota, and he, like, joked, like, you should be in a Toyota product. And we laughed, haha. And I woke up the next morning and I said, you know, maybe I should be. So like in 06, you know, we we started this Scion program and it, it went from like, I don't know, it went from a car with some parts and then became a, a championship winning club program. And then it went, we were the first people to ever go pro racing, you know, road racing for Scion and Grand Am. 52 cars in ST at Mid-Ohio. That was where I first drove with Craig Stanton. It was like 10, 11 years so ago. So Scion, Scion TC back then? She yeah. campaigning? Well, yeah. I mean, we went from an all-motor TC to a supercharged TC. And then we did, you know, some additional development for World Challenge and then eventually to a turbo TC. But, um, yeah, I mean, we raced that car everywhere you can race it. We raced it in the Work Endurance Series. We raced it in Performance Touring. We raced it in Grand Am ST, which was Coney Challenge at the time. Mm-hmm. And then we raced that car, and I built a second car, the 36 car, and we won, you know, the World Challenge Manufacturer Team and Driver Championship in 2010 with, you know, the two-car team, 19 podiums that year. So wow. Wow, that's a pretty, lot. pretty dominating so what's deal it, there. what's it take to, you know, go from club racing and running NASA stuff to, uh, you know, four years later, you know, winning a, winning a, you know, Coney Challenge Championship? Well, World Challenge Championship. Sorry. But, I mean... Um, the answer is there's a there's a lot of answers. Um, some of it is you just have to decide you really want to do it, and you're going to sacrifice a lot of things along the way, relationships and other kinds of things that you have to decide or if it's worth it or not. Everybody has their own choice to make on that. It depends how bad you want it. Um, but you know, I like to tell people there are pro level, pro mindset programs that take place every race on a club sanctioned event mm-hmm. and there are club or amateur programs taking place at a pro venue every time they race too so a lot of it is really the mindset and 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 at what level are you bringing to the racing um if you take that and and you bring you know that professional level mindset from into club racing you can translate it over into pro racing Similarly, if you're going to go pro racing like a club racer, you're, you're not going to do very well. Um, you know, it takes more money, so you need to be savvy with the marketing and the PR and, and your sponsors. Um, a lot of people think that they slap some stickers on a car and, wow, I've got a sponsorship. But, I mean, to me, that's almost nothing. That's just barely the tip of the iceberg. That's, that's what gives them pictures with their sticker on it, but it doesn't have anything to do with your press releases or your video or... That's like the way the, you go to that's shows. That's the bare minimum. It doesn't. There's no Barely. added value at all there. Right. So you have to figure out if you don't have those skills or that that PR and marketing savvy, who you're going to bring into the fold. Who does? Um, 
it takes everything. The the mistake that the guy who's finishing in second place, let's say, makes is that he assumes that if he had that one silver bullet, which most people think is more horsepower, that that guy who's beating him had, that, that he'd be the winner, or she'd be the winner. And the problem is, is the guy who's consistently winning is doing everything better. It's not just one thing or two things or three things or a hundred things. He's doing everything a little bit better. And you have sort of like a tolerance stacking phenomena that happens when you do all those things and you gain a little bit here and here and here and here and here. All of a sudden it turns into a second or it turns into a car that never breaks or, you know, something. Right. So realistically, there's three things that have to happen. Those three things are you have to know what to do. So you need the right you need to listen to the right people and maybe more importantly tune out all the wrong people and you have to recognize that 99% of the people are the wrong people so figure out what's white noise and what's good signal and and learn to know what to do right once you know what to do you have to figure out if you're able to do it are you able to do it do you have the skills necessary to execute what you now know is what you're supposed to do and then the third thing, which is sometimes the most elusive to people, is you have to be willing to do it. So, like, whether it's willing to go flat and turn eight at Willow Springs or whether it's willing to sacrifice all the stuff I'm talking about or something else, most people aren't willing to do what it takes to get to that level. So, but really, those are the three keys. And what I will say is, although my way and the DG spec way isn't the only right way, there's only about this many. You can count them on this one hand I'm holding up. <laughs> and if you multiply this number by a million, that's how many wrong ways there are. Right. There just aren't that many right ways to do it. Everyone else that thinks that they have a better mousetrap, I mean, more power to you, but you're going to fail. If you don't find one of the five or ten ways, you're going to fail. That's really all there is to it. So um, there's a whole bunch of people that will hear that and probably want to prove that wrong. And, uh, you know... They may think they've come up with something all that novel, but the reality is, is that they're following a process or a system that's working, you know, for many people that have come before them. So it's not so much about in, inventing something new. It's just about finding the, one of the few ways that does work, as there are more than one, um, and just executing it really exceptionally right. and all the time. Consistency, too. I mean, there are people that have all of the pieces but just can't consistently execute, like, for whatever reason, whether it's the driving or whether it's the marketing or whether it's, you know, how do they show up. There's a lot of Boy Scout motto in all this in terms of be prepared. And, you know, everybody that goes to the track knows a little bit about being prepared, but some people know a lot more about. Yeah. And, I mean, when you're, when you're working with, with larger sponsors like you guys do, you need to make sure that they're getting a good return on, on their, their investment. So the best way to do that, A, is first making sure you can finish the race, you know, that, that everything works well, but then also that you're, you know, at the pointy end of the field, too. So, you know, I think when you, when you step up to that higher level like you guys have, you know, and you have some, some factory-backed support and some larger-name sponsors, that you really need to make sure that you execute properly. So, and I think that's one thing, you know, especially looking at the, the build and, you know, talking to you, especially with 12-hour tests and things like that, you guys really do go that extra mile to make sure that, you know, whoever is, is helping you with your program is, you know, spending money that they're going to get a good return on. Yeah, I mean, obviously I haven't said it, but you said it. Everybody should know it in racing in order to finish first. First you must finish. Right. Except that people forget it all the time. <laughs> I mean, if you take a typical World Challenge race, there's going to be 30% attrition in a race. So if you just finish the race, you just beat three out of the 10 cars that start, right? Start there and then go go from there. But there is a second saying, and people seem to like this one. It's uh, if you lift for a second, that's where you'll finish, right? So it doesn't take much. You know, you're talking about these little bitty things, whether it's the build of a car or a driver that just gets to the gas just a little bit more. I mean, that's what determines whether you're getting by somebody or you're keeping somebody behind you. And the other thing is, you know, you don't have to have the fastest car to win the race. We won six races outright in World Challenge from only one pole position. Really? So that's why it's called racing. It's not time attack. It's not qualifying. I would say that if you want to, you know, be a road racer, if you want to develop that... Unfortunately, time attack's only going to take you so far. I mean, 
nothing against it, but it's just not right. going to get you there because it's not about how fast you go. It's about can you get in front and keep the guy behind you, behind you. Yeah. And can you do it in traffic? And can you do it when he's faster than you? And what do you do if you have a problem with the brakes? And, you know, or your gearbox, you lose a gear. I mean, you still got to figure out. Yeah, you have to learn to adapt to conditions when you're out there. You know, so, say you lose third gear. How are you going to make it work? You're not going to pull in, you know, in the middle of a race because you lost third gear. You know, you learned uh, to make do with what you have. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of times where the car that doesn't run the fastest lap time wins the race. But again, it's called racing. It's not qualifying. It's not time right. attack. We're racing. Right. Right. It's the car across the finish line, not the guy that turns the fastest lap. Yeah. Consistency. Again, consistency of the laps, taking care of your equipment, consistently bringing the car home. If you just were to say, we're going to figure out a way to finish every race, you would do decently in pro racing, even if you weren't that fast. Just because you finished every race. Yeah. So it's important to remember. Yeah. Or, you know, there's certain races like the 25 hour um, that I know you guys, you guys have, have participated in a little bit. Um, one of those races, even if you, you're not the fastest car, but you don't have any mechanical issues, you know, there could be a team that might have to, might lose an hour or two for mechanical issues. They, sure, they get back out there, they finish the race, but they've lost so many laps over that, you know, two hour time span that they were, they were, you know, down that, you know, it just puts them out of contention. Yeah. So, well, I mean, when we did our plan for the 25 hours in E1 and we had a 27 stop planned race. So imagine having to stop 27 times. If you can significantly beat how fast other people are doing their stops, that's worth way more than one second every lap on the track. Right. So 27 stops, a lot of stops. You know, if you cut if you cut 30 seconds off, you know, I mean, that's essentially kill people. Yeah. So when you do that 26 times, you know, your stops are 30 seconds faster. Yeah. You know, that adds up to 13 minutes, you know. So that's a, a decent amount of time. That's, that's a couple laps. Yeah, I mean, we got to the point where we could, um, we could dump a gallon every eight-tenths of a second. Wow. So, I mean, uh, I love things that encourage ingenuity and innovation. And um, we came up with some good ones when, when we did that stuff. So... And it was good in the regular endurance racing too. So, but then you start looking at the twenty-five, and you start thinking about your, you know, your brakes and, and your tire changes and stuff, and you know that stuff starts to add up. So, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of times people want to just do something different just because it's their way, or again, it's the ego getting in the way when there's like some tried and true thing that's just going to be better, and maybe you should start there and just tweak the knobs just a little bit versus like some crazy stupid mad scientist thing (laughs) that yeah maybe it's gonna work but at the end of the day you only have so much time and you only have so much mental focus you have to flatten out the things that are complicated that have simple solutions rather than just being a mad scientist it's why engineers don't run race teams in general i mean it, it, it takes a certain type of person you listen to an engineer and you listen to a driver and you listen to all these people, but you got to make a decision at the end of the day that's the best solution for the time and the cost and, and what's available. I mean, I'd rather have a car that had a, let's call it, quote unquote, inferior engineering solution that somehow got me ahead in a, a, a big enough head start that I got to do twice the amount of testing as the other guy that had the more superior solution. So, I mean, it's just really important to test and to get that track time. And the only way you get more is if you make as many things as you can simple, really simple. Right. So Now, for, you know, for like your average track day person or average, you know, maybe club racer, what are some things that they can easily implement, you know, that would dramatically change their program? Like, you know, we yeah. talked earlier, it's just doing that little bit extra, but in a lot of different places that really adds up. Now, what are some things that you see a lot of people the, leaving on the table, I guess? Well, the first thing is get organized. So I would say you, you make your check sheets and your binders, and you follow a system. So if after every time the car comes off the track, you have a checklist that's pre-printed with lines, and you check it or you write down notes and stuff, same thing for, like, your pre 
five minutes and you're like, what do you do after? You hear about all these stupid things that happen to people like a hood pin. And, and it really, it just comes down to starting really successful habits. And you don't do it because you have to do it. Like in the garage, who cares if you put a hood pin on or not? But you have to do things the same way every time. There are way too many things in racing that are going to require more of your brain power. You're going to be tired. It's going to be a long weekend. You go for three days, it's going to be 60 freaking hours, right? You have to take the brainless things away from the brain. That means that they go on paper, and that means that you get organized. Because when you do have something diagnostic or something set up that requires more higher brain functioning, you need to save your brain power for that. So that would be you know, one of the things just straight away that, that they can do. Um, the other thing is just realizing that the number one modification, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking about who I'm talking to. You asked me the question about right. you know, these guys that I think you're asking me about. The number one modification you can make to the car to make it go faster is the steering wheel gasket. Yep. Right? So that's the pink squishy <laughs> thing between the wheel and the back of the seat. And many people don't want to admit that part, too. But, I mean, you're going to get way farther with having more track time and learning than you are by trying to, you know, make another 50 horsepower or work right. on your car more. So, you know. We use an expression that says, first you make it last and then you make it fast. Like, until you can prove that over and over and over and over, and then what? Over and over and over and over, the car is bulletproof. You do not, and you do not deserve, and thou shalt not try to make the car any faster. If it's braking, even, you know, sporadically, you have to solve those issues first. It's first you make it last, and then you get to make it fast. And you do those in cycles. You make it last. Everything's good. Then you make it faster, and then you find something else that's going to break. Then you make it last again at that level before you move up to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So, you know, that's another version of in order to finish first, first you must finish. Mm -hmm. But guys are pursuing, like, making their car faster before they really make their car truly reliable. And I will say that of all the things that I see out there and that I do, going out to some of these time attacks... They are the worst the reliability. <laughs> There's all the cars that are going to oil down the track. Yep. All the cars that are going to, you know, and also they're like one lap wonders and stuff like that. So, I mean, you're going to get farther, even if you are interested in time attack and learning how to prepare a car that can last a long, a lot longer of a time. Right. Without any problems. I think one thing, too, you know, in, in time attack, there's some really fast time attack cars out there that are cool. But as a driver, the last thing you want to be worrying about is if you could actually make it another lap or not. You know, so if you if you build a reliable time attack car, all you have to do is worry about your driving. You know that the car is going to be rock solid and it's going to be there for you. It also means that you're going to be, you know, regardless of if you're doing time attack, wheel to wheel, anything, having a car that you've tested and is reliable and you know that you're not going to have any issues, you're spending a lot of money to go to the track and to race and travel and things like that. It's an easy way to make sure that you're not wasting money. You know, for the most part, if you say on, you know, even with your, your tow rig, say something happens on your tow rig because you didn't have time to do something to it and it prevents you from going to the track that weekend, you know, most of the time you're not going to get your entry fees back. So that's just money that you've already wasted and just thrown away yeah. right there because you didn't do something that might have taken you 15 minutes. Well, you have to put moratoriums on certain things. So, like, you have to have discipline. I mean, that's the one of the biggest things that you can also have. So you can say... I am not working on the car the night before. Right. And I know it's going to be hard for most people, but you have to put a moratorium on it and say, I'm not going to do it. My deadline is this. Because if you do that, A, you're going to be better rested. It's going to be less stressful. You know, you're going to have work to making the car ready beyond it being last minute. Oh, and by the way, if, the, if Murphy shows up and some unexpected crap happens, you have that little buffer to be able to do something about it. Guys get sideways because they use all their available time. Yep. Like, if you back that up and you put a moratorium on the day or two beforehand, you know, it's it's going to be a better situation all around. And, you know, if you don't have anything else to do and the car is ready, go freaking have margaritas, whatever. Yeah. But, I mean, you got to have the option to have the time. Um, It'll make the weekend a lot more relaxing. Yeah, and you're right about the tow rig and all that other stuff. People... That is another one of the things that they start talking about, about the, you know, when you're getting your competition license at some of these schools, it's like, okay, now remember, it's not just about the car. Now you have to maintain our trailer and you yep. have to maintain a truck. And, you know, if you can't get the car there, like, because you didn't replace the wheel bearing on the trailer or it doesn't have good tires or it's loaded wrong, um, you know, it, 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 you're, you're, you're done before you even started. 
The truth of the matter is, is that I don't care what race you go to, at what level. The outcome of that race is partially decided before you get there. I mean, what happens during the race is like that last little bit of the iceberg that's above the water. There's a huge chunk of ice. It's, just, it's all your preparation and all of your planning. Yeah. And what you accomplish there is your sum total of what you put into it beforehand. And, you know, like a driver, I mean, some people could talk about a driver uh, like winning the race and, and drivers can win races but a lot of times drivers are more in the position of like a hockey goalie where they can lose the race for you if they you know break a gear or crash the car or do whatever but yeah. a team I mean teams win championships teamwork wins championships so people were trying to think about that even if you're even if your team is you're the only guy still people that maybe help you on the weekends or that you're bouncing ideas off of you have to learn who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't Right. You have to get really good at, at, again, signal from noise and figuring out which is which. Yeah. Most things are noise. Yeah. So. I think a lot of times people forget, you know, a big part of racing is is controlling the things that you can control, such as car prep and things like that. Obviously, in the course of the race, you know, you're obviously in control of the vehicle, but there's things that can happen out there. Your largest set of variables out of your control, though, is going to happen during the race. So there's all those variables leading up to it that you can control sure. to better make sure that, you know, that you're going to have a successful weekend. Yeah. Well, the other thing that uh, I would say is think carefully about where you spend your money if you're on a limited budget. And you have to excise everything that doesn't make you or the car go faster. So if that means, like, I don't know, a fancier trailer or a golf cart or a, a whatever that may seem like something you want to do but just know if you're on a limited budget that's taking away money from something that's like a better set of shocks or right. um, really track time at the end of the day so like you know when we won the world challenge trifecta you know of championships in 2010 we didn't have like the nicest golf cart or awning or a rig or anything like that. I mean, there's some stuff that was pretty, you know, bare bones. But nobody outspent us on our on our suspension package or on our track time or on our data acquisition or on the time we spend with the drivers late at night in the hotels trying to make them faster in those cars. You know, um, you know. Another thing is try not to chase your tail. Like, don't make too many changes at once. Like when you're just learning about like how to set up a car and stuff, yeah. like you're going to go backwards. Um, so just take one or two things at a time. Also know that if you're making changes in a car and you as a driver are not up to speed yet, all you're going to do is make that car undrivable by the time you do learn how to drive it or figure out the track. And now it's going to be, you know, you're going to crash it and carry another three to five miles an hour more speed into every turn, the car setup's going to be all wrong. So unless the setup is just horrific, focus on making sure that you're up to speed and that you're driving your car at the rate that that car, you know, is capable of being driven. And if you don't know the answer to that, put somebody in the car who's willing to drive your car that's a, that's a really solid, you know, pro or top club caliber driver mm -hmm. you're gonna learn a lot more from that than you think no matter you know again it goes back to the ego, thing ego. Again. put that ego aside somebody can always drive better than you can so learn learn what's capable and i've i've got experiences of like setting up lemons cars and other stuff for people and they're like oh my god this car never turned so well and this is amazing and i drove the car and i'm like fuck i'd crash that thing like <laughs> lap two so loose but it's like that's what happens when you start carrying in more speed yep. and you're loading things up more yeah. and your 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 camber curve is changing more and what's well, amazing like you know people have let me drive their cars sometimes that you know they might not be as experienced and they never have any issues tracking the car and you know i'll get behind the wheel and two laps three laps later the brakes are done or it's overheating or, or something just because it's driven at a, a different level so yeah. that's it's kind of one of those things that I've always found kind of interesting. Somebody might think their car is completely rock solid. Then they put somebody else in the car that might be going just a little bit faster. And they go over that certain threshold to where the car no longer is happy anymore. Yeah, sometimes the opposite thing happens where like a proper person in the car is going to reduce the brake where even when they are going faster and stuff just because the way that stuff gets used. And I would right. say... 
you know, the biggest difference in the drivers is not that that qualifying speed. It's just not. Everyone's chasing that lap. But, I mean, we were in races all the time where the top, like, five positions were separated by two or three tenths of a second. And, you know, I had two cars at VIR with two totally different drivers from two totally different backgrounds and different ages. You know, one guy was twice the age of the other guy, and the cars qualified on that long course eight hundredths of a second apart. Wow. So the biggest difference that a driver will get you when you when you get up to the pro racing side mm-hmm. is um, how hard are they on equipment? There are big differences in drivers in terms of how hard they are on equipment and related how often they're going to crash. There are huge differences in drivers there. That turn the same lap time, by the way, okay? Yep. So it's not like the guy's, like, There's a thousand ways to turn the same lap time. Um, And then the other big difference is that consistency and that race craft of, you know, being able to do it over and over and over and keep cars behind you. And also on a lot of these, like, on the street circuits and stuff, like Long Beach, Toyota Grand Prix Long Beach, which is happening this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. You have almost no track time. So getting up to speed very quickly is what separates a pro from a non-pro. In my opinion, getting up to speed very quickly with very little track time is that's a huge difference. Some uh, some other guy might be able to do it. He thinks he's really good time attacking or do whatever. But it just takes him a lot longer. Right. Yeah, so. you know, I think a, a competent driver, I think Ross Bentley said it, a competent driver can drive faster offline, off of the perfect line than a non-competent driver can on the perfect line. Well, you're driving offline all the time, whether yeah. it's because of traffic or, you know, whether it's because you're trying to keep a guy behind you and you're shallowing up your entries or whatever else you're doing. I mean, I figure, I don't know. I could keep somebody behind me for a pretty long time. Within about a second, I can cover it. Much more than that, he's going to get by you or he's going to crash you out pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, up to about a second, you can cover that if you're making your car real wide and you know what you're doing. Um, but it's stressful. Yeah. I mean, you got somebody behind you that's faster and you're trying to keep them in back of you. It takes a lot of, a lot of work. Yeah. I can, so. Yeah. Um, real quick, you know, we've been at this for almost an hour. Uh, almost an hour. It goes hour. by quick. It goes okay. by quick. Um, but I wanted to, to cover something that you brought. You actually brought an issue of Automobile Magazine um, for their All-Stars issue this year. Was that like a March? May. May. So that was pretty much the one that's on newsstands right now. Um, but there's an article in there that you were showing me uh, where essentially you helped them be able to develop, I don't want to say curriculum, but you educated all the journalists that were evaluating the 26 cars that they were testing and kind of educating them on how to properly evaluate. Uh, you know, you obviously have a lot of experience yourself going through, a, you know, obviously being a journalist, but then developing all the, the cars that you have through DG spec. What sort of things were you going over with them? You know, because for me, one thing that's always been frustrating is reading articles about cars and how they handle and this and that when it doesn't necessarily come from a trusted source. You know, you see the lap times that they run and some of the some of the tests, not with like Randy Pope's driving and things like that, but when a journalist is driving and you look at it and you go, that car should be a little bit faster than that. You know, to me, it starts discrediting what they have to say about the car. So obviously you're out to kind of fix that, educate the drivers on not necessarily how to drive faster, but how to properly evaluate all the different characteristics and aspects of the vehicle that they're that they're evaluating. Yeah, well, you know, Automobile started talking to us at the Utah Grand Prix last year and and said, look, we've got a very mixed staff. Like, we've got new people, we've got old people, we've got car people, we've got non-car people, and we're getting ready for our all-stars you know, program. And it's, you know, one of the biggest things we do, if not the biggest, and we want people to be better prepared. Like, what do you recommend? And so to make a very long story short, um, we said, Craig Stan and I said that we thought we could develop a curriculum that would, that would really do a great job for them and do way more than any just like race or high performance driving or car control program could. And we, uh, we took it to Toyota, and, and ultimately they got 86s and, and, of course, the new Camry involved. And so in 86s and in Camrys, we, we developed like five or six different courses within the whole facility at Willow Springs. And we piloted this program, which has since become known as the Toyota Driving Academy, presented by DG Spec. And um, 
you know, we taught them all sorts of things, not just about vision and smoothness, but um, about weight transfer and about, you know, you understanding like steering feel and about if a car's engine is in this position, like what will that generally do to the handling characteristic? And, you know, if the drive wheels are here, what happens there? And like if the track width is this. And so just trying to understand all these different configurations and how things work. Um, and we developed a lot of interesting exercises and unique ways to sort of teach people beyond what I've ever seen, you know, happening at, uh, at all sorts of, you know, driving programs around the world. And so we really set out with a clean sheet of paper to try to come up with some novel approaches to try to reinforce ideas in people's head um, by using ideas and concepts outside of racing and outside of automotive um, to get those concepts to be grasped by the participants because a lot of times people are just, they're in a classroom, they're esoterically talking about like, here's what you need to do to keep your eyes up or this is what you do to unwind the wheel and then you go out and you expect people to do it but like, what if you could find other things that they liked in their life and got them to relate and then the light bulb will go off more. So we worked hard with props and with techniques and things that we do and you know, if you read the automobile article, they talk about many of the things, not all the things, but many of the things that we did. So, um, you know, it was, a, it was a great program. I'm, I'm glad that they liked it. It's it's a part of their All-Stars coverage now, uh, again, in the May 2018 issue of Automobile. And we've since deployed it internally and put about 70 Toyota associates through uh, at Texas Motor Speedway so that they can better understand, you know, the cars that, that they sell and, and uh, how they're built and why they do what they do and how to describe what they do. So it's a really unique program. I think we're going to continue to do it. Um, we already have a massive amount of uh, interest in the program and many other groups are looking to do it. Um, as you said earlier, I hope that we can put a whole lot more media through it. Um, we have an uh, amazing cast of drivers from, you know, IMSA championship winning Rolex GT drivers to NASCAR gold license guys to Viper Challenge national champions. I mean, it's a really great group to learn from. And so, I, you know, I like to say that like attracts like. And so if DG Spec does things a certain way at a certain level, we're going to, I think, attract the people who also want to do things that way and at that level. So the group of guys that we have is awesome right now. Yeah, awesome. Well, we really appreciate your time. Uh, where can people find more about DG Spec and some of the other things that you guys are doing? Well, so you can go to our Facebook page. Uh, the handle's at DG Spec. There's a little bit of information on our on our website, which is uh, dongardnerspec.com, D-A-N-G-A-R-D-N-E-R-S-P-E-C.com. There's just a bit on there, but we, we routinely, the guys post different articles or things that we're doing on our Facebook page. It's mostly the way we tell people what we're doing. So I would say that that's probably the best way. And, uh, you know, you can also see sort of the integration of the, of the Gardner Automotive Communication side at, at GardnerAutoCom.com. Uh, and that'll give you a better idea of how we're using the marketing and the PR chops of the agency to help prop up and support the, the racing and the motorsports stuff. Awesome. Well, Don, it was a pleasure having you on the show, and uh, hopefully we'll have you again, uh, on again soon sometime. Thank you. Thanks Appreciate so much. It.